is slightly different. We are skipping over a whole bunch of stuff. But hopefully, um, so that we can get in our minds a big picture of God in the book of Ezekiel. So we're going to be doing a, a big overarching uh, picture of Ezekiel. I was thinking about a good way to explain what we're talking about this morning. And I thought I would, I, I could, ex- I would start by telling you that I married my wife, Laura, about 10 years ago. And although, <laughs> although, um, although we were once separate, we were joined together in the covenant of marriage and it's been marital bliss ever since. Maybe not, um, you know, you know, we have our ups and downs, we have our problems and, and all of us know, uh, that, uh, marriages, whether they've been passed or whether it's present, um, that our marriages have our problems. But we know that there is an ideal of marriage, that if you're married or not, you know that there, that there's this ideal of the loving couple that the husband and wife share their lives with one another. They live together, they, they enjoy one another, they, they are tied up in serving one another and giving themselves for one another. So it would be a bit strange if I, as a husband, was to say, well, you know, I'm married to Laura, but I'm going to live in a different house by choice. You say, oh, there's something not right there, that's a bit unhealthy. Then I say, oh, I'm married to Laura, but I'm not really going to relate to her. I'm just going to do my thing, she can do her thing. And you'll say, wow, there's something genuinely wrong with this relationship. And then I say, well, actually, I'm going to stay married to Laura, but I'm going to chase other women on the side. And you would very rightly beat me over the head and say, that is ridiculous. That undermines the whole thing, the whole purpose of this loving relationship. The idea that somebody who's entered into a relationship of love and joy, that then voluntarily separate themselves or ignore the other party while expecting the other party to still do all the nice things for you, but ignoring them, doing your own thing. In that kind of situation, we could rightly say that somebody's broken the covenant, broken the promises that they made to one another. And they're entitled, the other party, the offended party is entitled to be freed from that relationship. Well, that's how it is with God and Israel in the time of Ezekiel. God has said to Israel, I love you. I'm going to take you to be my own. I'm going to save you out of Egypt. We're going to go to Mount Sinai. We're going to have a big wedding ceremony. We will be joined together. I'll move in and we're going to build a beautiful house for you up in Canaan and we will travel up there together and we will live there together in love and unity and in blessing." God and his people are meant to live together. God and his people are meant to live together. And today in the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet of Ezekiel deals heavily with this idea that God and his people are meant to be together. Yet in Ezekiel's day, God and his people are living apart. They're separated. God has apparently disappeared. Israel's been exiled, kicked out of the house. So why does this old story of Israel's problems 
matter to us? Well, their problems, we will see, are our problems as well. God teaches us and instructs us today through how he has dealt with Israel in the past. We see in how God deals with his Old Testament people, how he also deals with his New Testament people. It reveals the character of God to us. So I want you to join with me as we go on this epic flyover of Ezekiel and we will see four key points that will help us answer the question that if God and his people are meant to live together, what does it take for them to live face to face? The first kind of key thing is that our temple is lost. You know, Ezekiel was from a a family of priests. And if everything went according to plan, when he turned 30 years old, he would have entered into the priestly service. He would have been training for it for many years. It was what, it was the family business. And he would have gone in and served God in the temple. But when Ezekiel turns 30 years old, when he's ready for his temple service to begin, where is he? He's about a thousand kilometers away in Babylon in exile. He is displaced. The people are dispossessed. They're driven out. So here's Ezekiel the priest with no temple to serve in and God comes to him and commissions Ezekiel to speak to the exiled people of Israel and explain to them why they're in that predicament and what, if anything, God plans to do about it. So this book is essentially a record of the messages that God gave to his people, Israel, through the prophet Ezekiel. But it's not just a haphazard smattering of oracles that are kind of slapped together. They are all in an ordered uh, grouping. And when we look at them all together, we see a big story arc that ties the whole book together. And the primary theme that is used is that of God living together with his people. And it is shown in the idea of temple where God and man can meet face to face. The temple is the place where God's people met with him. It was a, the the temple of Solomon was a more permanent structure that replaced the tabernacle, the tent where God dwelt amongst the people of Israel while they were traveling. God's presence would dwell with them and it was the place where God would live in the midst of his people where they would worship him, where they would rejoice and meet with him, where they would, they would share meals with him. And God promised to bless and care for Israel and to provide for them. There was only one issue, though. God is good, perfect, and utterly holy. But the people of Israel were not good, not perfect, and they were not utterly holy. So we've got on the one hand a God who desires to dwell with his people who is perfect and a people who desire to dwell with their God who are not perfect. So God says, well, let's, let's see if we can work this out. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. He says, let's, let's create a sacred space in the middle. We will create buffer zones between the people, the unholy people and their holy God. We will create a holy area that is free from sin and corruption and everything that is evil and abominable. And so he gave them a whole bunch of instructions about it. You'll see it when you read Leviticus and, um, and Exodus and, um, and other parts of the Old Testament. 
this, all the instructions for how they were to set up the place where God and man could meet. We'll, we'll create a buffer where there's no sin and impurity and we'll have a place where you can come and, and you can sacrifice and you can share a meal with God. Now, all of this elaborate setup with sacred space and a temple was not because sin and impurity could impact God. It's not as though an unholy people could affect the holiness of God. He, God wasn't going to be tainted by their unholiness. It was going to be the other way around. God's holiness, if it comes into contact with our unholiness, will decimate us. And in fact, we have a couple stories where um, some, some people were sinning right next to uh, the tabernacle where God's presence was dwelling and fire came out of the tabernacle and consumed them. God's holiness cannot withstand sin and unholiness. So the temple provided a place where God's presence could reside and God and his people could live together in blessing and protection without God decimating the people around him. The problem was that the system never really worked properly. From the earliest days with the tabernacle, there were problems with people being unholy. God's holy presence in the midst of an impure people was going to be a problem for them. And God even threatened one time. He said to Moses, look, you go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God's glorious holiness and perfection will decimate impurity and evil. And yet God and his people are meant to live together. So so fast forward a couple hundred years to the time of Ezekiel and things aren't much better. God had gone up with the people, they built the temple and God dwelt there in Canaan, but things didn't improve. They remained rebellious and stiff-necked, as it were. And God said as much when he commissioned Ezekiel the prophet, he said to Ezekiel, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me, and they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Israel's sin against God was an ongoing problem, and God held up his side of the covenant promises when they entered into a covenant at Sinai. God held up his side. He did what he said he was going to do, but Israel was obsessed with other gods. In Ezekiel 20, it says, On that day I swore to them that I would bring them up out of the land of Egypt to a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And God did that for them. And then I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But what did they do? But they rebelled against me and they were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. God even describes the actions of Israel like an unfaithful wife whom he nurtured and clothed, and blessed, and set her up as royalty, only to have her cheat with anybody who came along. 
So bad was Israel's sin and evil that they're even described as essentially worshipping foreign gods in the temple. Israel gets, goes in this vision and he has a look through a hole in the wall and inside, in the dark and away from where they thought they could be seen, the people were worshipping foreign gods. But Ezekiel saw because God showed him this awful truth. And eventually God said, enough is enough. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. So he left. And Ezekiel describes what happens. He said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and of Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for my eye, my, me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And then a few verses later, he said, Ezekiel watches in a vision as the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of Israel was over them. So God's glory, which is meant to dwell with the people, meant to dwell in the temple, he says, enough is enough. I'm going to destroy the people. And God's glory rises up and exits the temple. God had held back long enough, but he wouldn't hold back anymore. His glory departed from the temple and he put the city to the sword. He had lived with their insolence. He'd lived with their rebellion. He'd lived with their abominations long enough. And then the people were decimated and the temple was torn down. God left. Like a rose bush, he cut them back to nothing but a twig. He preserved a remnant. Thankfully, he preserved a remnant in exile. Friends, it might be hard to envision this story because it's not a common experience for us to think about God in these terms of, of temple, of, uh, of God putting people to the sword. It's hard for us to envision the utter holiness of God because we haven't experienced it in this way. But I want you to know that this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we follow. He is a jealous God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. And he will not put up with sin. He is loving and he is kind and he pours out his blessing on people. He is merciful and he is slow to anger. But he will not hold back his wrath forever. For those of us who want to live as though God doesn't matter, he will be patient, he will be kind to you, but eventually he will treat you in the same way that you've treated him. If you treat him as worthless, eventually he will treat you as worthless as well. Friends, as humankind, we are all infected with sin and impurity that we have inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God and they were exiled from God's presence. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But God promised he would make a way, not only for the people of Israel, but for all the nations to come back and be able to live in the presence of God. 
And in that day, there will never be any sin again. There will be no shame. There will be no need for clothes. Like, you know, remember in the beginning that, that Adam and Eve needed to be clothed because they needed to cover their shame. But we will have no more shame before God when he has completed his plan to bring us back together again. Friends, we have lost the temple of Eden. The Israelites lost the temple in Jerusalem. But God has plans that will sort out the problem of sin once and for all. He brings a plan for a new temple where God and his people meet. It will be better and grander than whatever had gone before. It will be better in every way. So let's continue going through Ezekiel a little bit longer and let's see some of the visions that God shows us about how he will fix the ongoing issues that prevent God and his people living together. So next we see our temple rebuilt. After many chapters in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel spends a lot of time laying out how bad the problem of sin was with Israel, how they got exactly what they deserved, how God was right in doing what he did to them, we get towards the end of the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel lays out these magnificent visions of the future for God's people. Yes, things have not gone well for God's people. Yes, he's reduced them to almost nothing. But he has a plan in store for them and a future that will far, out see, ex- far outdo the past, far exceed the past. In chapter 40, God starts showing Ezekiel a series of visions focused around a future temple. And these series of visions forms the climax of the book and shows Israel that while they're in exile, while their present circumstances are bad, it's not the end. There is more to come. And for us, we probably don't appreciate the magnificence of these chapters because we read them and we read these building measurements and, and, uh, and people wandering around and he showed me this and he showed me that and he showed me this building and he, he showed me, he measured this part of the temple. It probably doesn't strike us as thing, you know, something that we're longing to read, but it portrays this picture of a glorious temple that is prepared to perfection. It is just right. Let's just get a taste of some of that. Uh, in Ezekiel 40, verse 5 to 7, it said, And behold, there was a wall around, all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. And then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep, And the side rooms, one reed long and one reed broad. And the space between the side rooms, five cubits. And the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the the gate at the inner end, one reed. And so it goes on and on and on and lays out this perfect temple structure of glorious proportions. Ezekiel's taken around with his vision guide and he measures all the different parts. Everything about the temple is just right. It's square. It's, it's precise. Now imagine for a second that you were building your dream home, that you had, you had, you had your money saved up or you got the, the permission from the bank and you were going out and you were going to build the house that you wanted to live in for the rest of your life. What are you going to do? You're going to plan. You're going to prepare. You're going to make sure that you get a good layout 
that the aspect is right so you get the winter sun in, and, and then it's not too hot in winter. You're going to make sure that the bedrooms are in the right spot as relation to the living areas and that the garage is big enough and, and that, the, that you've got enough space to fit your fridge in and you're going to know all the precise points about the house that you're going to build. And so it is with the dream temple. It is the dream house of God and he knows exactly how it's going to be built. And it's going to be just right. Ezekiel is shown a new temple that is bigger and grander than any temple that had come before or has come since. And he is reassured that God will create a space where God and man can live face to face. God is not content to let his, leave his people to languish in exile. Just as God will not put up with sin forever, he will also not put up with being separated from his people forever. He will bring them to himself. And Jesus says something of the same in John chapter 14. Whoops. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So God is rebuilding our temple. But then, our temple is filled And this is where we finally get to Ezekiel 43 that we had read before. Our temple filled. Having painted a picture of this grand temple, Ezekiel is taken to the east gate so that he sees the return of God's presence, the return of the glory of God. Remember earlier, God had left the temple. He couldn't stand the evil and sin anymore. He did away with the old temple. Now in this vision of the future grand temple, Ezekiel sees a return of God's glory to the temple. Let's look at that grand entrance in the first five verses of 43. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. With overwhelming sights and sounds, Ezekiel gets to see the coming of the glory of the Lord. This is an epic event that heralds in a new age where God and his people can live together in perfection. God's back. His presence has gone out to the east, has now returned through the east gate, and now he will dwell there in a temple that will never be defiled again. It's a glorious future hope that Israel can look forward to, and it will be the undoing of their shameful past. God's return fulfills God's promises that he would never truly forsake his people. 
And friends, I want to tell you this morning that the temple that Ezekiel describes has not been built, not, not physically, with bricks and mortar. And if I understand the Bible correctly, it will never be built. Because what Ezekiel's describing is not a plan so that we can copy down blueprints and get together bricks and mortar and go and build it on a mountain. He's describing to us something that is greater and grander than we can ever imagine. Like the rest of the prophecies in the Bible, they are showing us, they are painting a picture of the magnitude of what God is doing in the world. It's showing us something of what is to come, something that our minds won't actually fully be able to comprehend. And when Jesus turns up, we actually get a better insight into what these prophecies and what these visions are leaning in towards and showing us. It's not that there will never be an Ezekiel temple. It's that what Ezekiel's describing is an allusion to something greater and grander than an, than an epic building. He's describing the coming of God's presence, God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit to come and dwell with His people. And God will need to prepare and purify His people so that they, can't, they can accept the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling among them. And Ezekiel's already alluded to this fact that he will need to do a work in the hearts of people. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within that a new spirit that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And then he says a few verses later, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be, they shall be my people. God wants to dwell with his people. But in order for that to happen, he needs to deal with the problem of sin. He does that by bringing us to life. We're essentially dead in sin and he sends his spirit to bring us to life, purifying us so that we can live the way that he wants us to live, desire the things that God desires and live in the blessing that God has for his own people. You see, Jesus Christ came into the world to take away our sin. He came into the world to die for sin in our place. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we would but take him by faith. But if we are to receive what Jesus has for us, we need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, to receive it. The problem that divides God and his people is our sin. So he will take away our sin and shame so that we can be joined with him. And the thing is, we are the temple. We are the temple where God wants to come and dwell. And he's already beginning it by the way that he indwells us with his Holy Spirit. But one day, we will dwell with him face to face without any need for a building. 
Jesus has already said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then Paul says in Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the temple. The church is where God wants to dwell. God wants to be with his people. You see, we don't need a building anymore. And Revelation 21 reminds us that in the end, there will be a holy city and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. He's already indwelling us now by His Holy Spirit, purifying us, preparing us, sanctifying us, building us up so that we can live with Him face to face. He is taking away from us everything that is evil and offensive to God. He's growing us and changing us, ready for God's return. And this is why we call ourselves Eastgate Bible Church. Sorry, Eastgate Bible Church. We want to be the people of the Eastgate, oriented towards God's return, being built up and prepared and waiting and ready for Him, purified parts of the God's temple. And so lastly, we see that we have our permanent temple. What happens after the glory of God arrives at the temple? God says, I'm here to stay. I'm not going anywhere. In, in, later on in chapter 43, it says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. They won't be able to do what they did before in the way that they sinned, in the way that they rebelled against God, in the way that they did everything that they could that was in opposition to God. It won't happen anymore. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. There's no way that God will allow sin back into the temple. He will, nothing that is unholy will be able to enter. This time the temple is here to stay and God will never leave. And interestingly, after God's glory arrives and God says, look, I'm here to stay, Ezekiel's taken back to the east gate. He brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces east and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. The gate that God entered by is shut. It's no use anymore. God has come in and he'll never leave. He's here to stay. God's presence will stay with his people forever. And the only person who gets to use the gate is this enigmatic prince figure, who's, that's a discussion for another day, but uh, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. 
So having purified his people and prepared a temple where God and his people would dwell, all is well. It's permanent. The the relationship is reconciled. There's no strife or division, no argument or cheating. Everything's sorted out. God will dwell forever with his people and the Holy Spirit will go out like a river from the presence of God and affect the world and and change it into what it was meant to be. And the last few chapters of Ezekiel show that the worship has been sorted out. Everything is right. They will worship him properly. No more mixed and half-hearted worship. No more scattered people. They will be gathered around his holy place. And they'll live with the Lord. And in the final verses of the book, capping off the whole theme of the book, the holy temple city is given a name. It's given a name... It used to, it, it, the temple city is commonly called Jerusalem or Mount Zion, but in this last verse it's given a new name. And the name of the city from that time on shall be The Lord is There. The Lord is There. The fact that God dwells with his people means that the city is now known by that name. It is called The Lord is There. Not be, merely because it's a blessed city by God, not merely because His people are there, not merely because it's a good place to worship, it's because that's where the place where God is. And interestingly, a few years later, God would send Jesus into the world, and what was the name he was given? Emmanuel, God with us. He was with us, and after accomplishing his work, he is now returned to sit at the right hand of the Father, but he is preparing a place for us. And one day he will return and he will return to be with us for good. So, what now? Where to from here? How does this affect the way we live? How does this knowledge that we are the temple change the way that we live tomorrow or this afternoon or how we relate to one another even after the service? Well, it means that if we are the temple of God, we ought to live like it. If we are being built into a holy, sacred space that is purified of everything that is evil, then that's what we should embody, a purified, holy people who put away sin, who put away the abominations that God hates. We are individually and corporately the temple of God. And so you'll find across the New Testament, you'll find times when when they make arguments for how we should live, and it says, why? Because you are the temple of God. If this is a place where God lives, then we cannot defile it. What are some of those things that defile God's temple? Well, in Israel... And in his church, sexual immorality is one of those big things that he says defiles his church, defiles his temple. So we don't, um, we don't live in a way that, um, that denies the way that God has made us to live as sexual beings. It means that 
we are not unequally yoked with unbelievers. When, when Paul makes his argument for not being unequally yoked, he says, why? Because the temple of God has nothing to do with the temple of demons. And one of the common ways that people talk about being unequally yoked is in, is in the way that Christians shouldn't seek to marry non-Christians. But it's bigger and broader than that. In the way that we should not involve ourselves with unbelievers in a way that, that affects our service of God. We don't, as a, as, a, as, a, as a church, we don't join with other religious organizations that are following false gods because they are opposed to God. They are serving demons and false idols and false gods. Believers should not be unequally yoked. And there's a lot of work that you might need to do to think through what that looks like, but we don't have time for it here. In the way that we live as sacred spaces, the way that we live as a purified temple, we put away sin. We live as repentant people. When God, through His Holy Spirit, shows us sin in our lives, we have to turn around and run away from it. We have to repent. Be devoted to being God's dwelling place permanently. We understand that God will never leave. God has told us that some people will live as though they are part of God's people for a time, but then they will go out from among us because they were never really truly part of us. But the thing is, those people who are part of God's temple endure. And so we need to, we need to be ready to endure to the end and live as the purified people. We can't take for granted what God has given us. We need to endure as the holy people. We've been sanctified and indwelt by God, so we must treat ourselves as holy space. You know, when you've got visitors coming over to your house, what do you do? You run around and you make sure everything's in the right place and you quickly get out the vacuum and you prepare the place for your visitors, your honourable guests to arrive. How much more work then should we put into preparing for God to indwell us? For making this a place where God can dwell Yes, it is the work of God and he does it in us by, by pushing us to, to reach and to search for holiness and purity. So then, if God and his people are meant to live together, what does it take for God's people to live face to face? He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will bring us to himself. He will build a new temple that cannot be defiled. He will return to dwell forever with his people, something that he's already begun through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are drawing us back to yourself, that you are preparing a place for us, that you are sanctifying us so that you can dwell with us face to face forever. And Lord, we want that. So we ask that you would continue your work and that you would make us willing participants, willing to seek and to search for you <clears throat> and do what is pleasing in your sight. Please, Lord, reveal to us those sins, those things that defile us, those things that are an abomination to you. And please, Lord, give us the strength in your spirit to put them away, to get rid of them. Lord, please help us not to be shy from that. 
Lord, help us as a people to help each other to put away sin. And Lord, help us to have an orientation towards you, to be prepared for your return, to be yearning for that. And Lord, we just want to celebrate and thank you for what you have already begun in us and what you have achieved in us through Jesus Christ and by the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.